What a blessing it has been just to be with you today, just to listen to the music, to be able to hear the preaching of God's Word this morning. This evening, if you have your Bibles, will you please turn with me to the book of Psalm 78, and if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 78. Great to hear the turning of the pages. Some call it Baptist air conditioning. I like that. Psalm 78, the sacred historian, records these words for us. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. And then our text is found in verse 7 tonight, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. May the Lord add his blessing to his word tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, and what a sacred task we have to stand behind this pulpit, a man of God, a man who preaches the word clearly. And Lord, I would just ask that you would bless in my feeble, frail efforts to fulfill your word. I pray, Lord, that in everything that we say and do, you would get all of the honor and all the glory, that it would be our desire, like John the Baptist, that you would increase, that we would decrease. And Lord, I pray that our hearts desire, as we minister to the lives around us, that young people would set their hope in God. We ask, Father, that in everything that we do in our lives, Lord, may we consider first and foremost the eternal consequences And I pray, Lord, that you would just use us now this evening. May our hearts be tender. May the Holy Spirit do a work in our lives. And we would thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. My message tonight is entitled, Some Thoughts on Christian Education. I've been asked in the past, how did you get started in Christian education? My story begins when I was 14 years old. I was unsaved. I was in a ton of trouble. I was one step ahead of the law. The only difference between myself and my friends is they were getting caught for the things that we were doing. I had not gotten caught yet, but I knew that day was coming. And a young man that I played ball with said, would you like to go up to a church camp with us? Now, I was Roman Catholic, and the only thing I could think of when he asked that question is, if I go up to that camp in northern Wisconsin, two hours from the Twin Cities of St. Paul, Minneapolis, The cops can't find me there. So I got on the bus on Monday, went up to camp. Monday afternoon, this was the first time I'd ever been around Bible believers for any length of time. There was Bible teaching, Bible preaching. Monday evening, there was a campfire service. And the message in front of the campfire was the reality of hell. Hell is real. It's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this will be your eternal destiny. Got up on Tuesday morning. This was unusual to me to sit around a table with other believers, with, with believers, not myself, and listen to them talk. They would say things like, I was reading my Bible this morning, 
I just looked at them like, you are reading your Bible this morning. Somebody else said, I was praying today, and it was as if the Lord said, I thought you were praying, and God spoke to you. All day Tuesday, the same activities, Bible teaching, Bible preaching, Tuesday night, the campfire service, the reality of hell. Wednesday, the schedule was a little bit different. In addition to the other activities that we had, Wednesday evening, we came to an independent fundamental Baptist church for the midweek service. And all the way into that church service and all the way back, I kept asking my camp counselor, how can I know that I'm saved? I was Roman Catholic. I knew the Passion story. I knew the Apostles' Creed. I knew the story. And that night, July 10th, 1974, I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save me, to accept me into his kingdom, to forgive me of my sin, to make me a new creature, to redeem me as one of his own. That fall, I went back to our public school, and as a new believer, with starts and stops, with all of the problems that a new believer has trying to live out his faith, I would try to witness to my friends, and I would, some days I would get bold, and I would carry my Bible with me to class so that they knew I was identified with the Bible. And they would say things like to me, like, are you a Jesus freak, Tim? Are you going to sit in the lunchroom and not talk to us? One, one asked, are you a Bible salesman? as I carried my Bible with me. And after a year's time of trying to be a witness to my friends in the public school, I went to my dad, who is Roman Catholic, and I said, Dad, I would like to go to a Christian school this fall. And he said, that is great. And then he listed the Catholic schools in the St. Paul, Minneapolis area he'd like to send me to. Do you want to go to Creighton? He named some others. I said, Dad, you don't understand. I would like to go to Fourth Baptist Christian Day School in Minneapolis. And he said, oh, if if that's what you want, I can't pay for that. You'll be on your own. And all I heard him say was, yes, you can go to a Christian school. I went out that summer and got a job, enrolled myself in fourth. Every single month when the bill came, it came with my name on it. I wanted to be in the type of Christian school that you have here, and I was willing to pay my own way to go there. The next year, Sue and I graduated from Rosemount Baptist Schools, and then we went down to Bob Jones University. I must say, you're looking at somebody who's pretty gifted. It took me seven years to get a four-year degree from Bob Jones. (laughs) I finally graduated magna cum Takes a minute. It was so bad that after seven years of being on that campus, we had a professor who had been conscripted into Adolf Hitler's army when he was 14 years old. And I had him for three classes. I had him for an orientation class. He wouldn't have known me there. I had him for a philosophy class, and then I had him for a German class. And after seeing me on campus for seven years, finally coming to graduate, they said, now walk up on the platform, see your dean. He'll hand you the, the uh, container that you put your diploma in, make your way off the platform and find your seat. As I walked up to him to get my diploma, he looked at me and said, well... I never thought I would see the day. (laughs) And I thought, all right, way to encourage the troops on the way out of here. (laughs) Then I taught in South Carolina for two years, taught in Indiana for three years, and then the Lord moved us up here to Michigan. And I would be the first to admit that while I wasn't born in Michigan, we got here as soon as we could. We loved living in the state of Michigan. We loved ministering with the Michigan Association of Christian Schools. We loved the work that he's called us to. So tonight, in the few moments that we have remaining with us, I want us to take a look at Psalm 78 and just have some thoughts on Christian education. I would like to submit to you tonight 
that every single home is a school. Every person, every one of us, is a teacher. And every single day, great lessons are being learned. Martin Luther, the reformer, made this statement. He said, I am afraid that the schools will prove to be the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the heart of youth. You are blessed to have Fostoria Baptist Academy here. You are blessed with the teachers that invest in your children, not just in this generation, but in the next generation to come. You are blessed to have a pastor with a burden for Christian education. You are blessed beyond measure to have the opportunities that you have here. So tonight, let's take a look at Psalm 78 and see what the psalmist has for us. Verse 1 says, Give ear, O my people. Incline, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. What is the psalmist saying here? What's he saying to the listeners? He's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. Why does he have to say that? Because we know in every single generation there are voices to tell young people, listen to me. Listen to me. There was a day those voices came from friends and classmates. There's a day those voices came over the radio and the television. Today, those voices can come through a device that every single student holds in their palm, the palm of their hand. And if they listen to those voices, it can ruin their life. They can make choices with their life that will alter their destiny forever. And so the psalmist is saying, listen to me. I have one grandchild, and when I need to get his attention, I have to say, look right at Papa. Listen to me. Look me in the eyes. Listen to what I'm about to say. We need to get the attention of this generation and the next by saying, listen to me. Too often in life, we get thick with thin things, stuff that really doesn't matter in light of eternity. Let me ask you a question. Who won the World Series eight years ago? I don't know. Who won the Super Bowl 12 years ago? I don't know. It's got to be important. People miss Sunday night church to watch the Super Bowl, right? Let me ask you another question. When you were in school, who was your favorite teacher? Can you think of one? Did you have a favorite teacher? Who was it? Tell me one. Tell me a name. Who was it? Anyone? Who was it? Mrs. Yardley. What, what did we learn from her? Amen. And, and so typically when I ask that question, what I hear is I hear something about their character. I hear something about the person that they were. They cared for me. They, they helped me. They mentored me. Very rarely do I hear, well, they, they, they taught, taught me Pythagorean trigonometry or something like that. But they say they were a good person. The teacher that I think had the most influence on me, I was in seventh grade. I was, looked at my class schedule, and it said, world geography right after lunch. Can you see anything wrong in triplicate with that statement right there? Seventh grade, world geography right after lunch. Her name was Mrs. Stapp, and she was a disciplinarian. She was an authoritarian. She was a wonderful teacher. Very first day of class, she gave rules for her classroom. Show up on time, do your homework, 
Don't eat any food in class. Make sure that you pay attention and take notes in class. So she started her class, and she said, we're going to begin looking at world geography. And world geography begins with the Titus and Euphrates River. It's called the Fertile Crescent. And then it makes its way down into Palestine, Israel. She said, did you ever wonder why every single night on the news you can hear something from the Middle East? And she said, the reason for that is, is there was a man by the name of Abraham, and he was old. I thought, this has got to be on the test, so I'm writing down Abraham was old. (laughs) And he had a, a wife named Sarah, and she was old too, and they couldn't have children. And so Sarah said to Abraham, take my handmaid Hagar and have a child by that with Hagar, and that child's name was Ishmael. And then he was told that his wife Sarah would have a child, and that child's name was Isaac. And Ishmael became father of part of the Arabic race. Isaac became part of the Jewish race, and they live at enmity one with another. A couple of years later, I went up to camp, and at the church camp, I got saved. became a member of First Calvary Baptist Church. attended Sunday school. I remember walking down into Sunday school. We had it in the library area. And our Sunday school teacher one Sunday said, our lesson today is on the life of Abraham. Abraham was old. I've heard this story before. And he had a wife. Her name was Sarah. And as he taught that lesson, it dawned on me that Mrs. Stapp taught a Sunday school lesson in South St. Paul Junior High. 3,000 junior high students in six buildings on one campus. Think about that, 3,000 junior high students. That is the definition of gross ignorance. (laughs) And she taught a Sunday school lesson, not because it was in the curriculum, but because it was the right thing to do for the subject that she had. Mrs. Stapp had memories of me. One of her rules was no eating any food in class. So as I mentioned, I had it right after lunch, and I hadn't finished the half a bag of M&M peanuts that my mom had put in my lunch that day. So just as I walked into her classroom, I threw the last part of those peanuts into my mouth. Now here's a little tip for you listening at home. Junior high kids cannot eat or chew M&M peanuts silently. So as I was sitting at my desk chewing my M&M peanuts, she said, who's eating in my class? And she walked over and she squeezed my cheeks And she said, are you eating food in my class? And I have this nervous reaction of just laughing out loud when I'm in big trouble. And I blew those partially eaten M&Ms all over the classroom. She said, you can clean those up afterwards. Sue and I got engaged, and she has an older sister, Kathy, whose best friend happened to be Mrs. Stapp. And one day, Kathy was talking to Mrs. Stapp, and she said, Susie got engaged. And Mrs. Stapp said, oh, that's wonderful. Who did she get engaged to? And Kathy said, Tim Schmig. Dramatic pause on the end of the line. And then she said, Tim Schmig, he's the cause of my every gray hair. (laughs) Well, thank you. Appreciate the high comment. But, But why do we remember our favorite teacher? The reason we do that is because teaching is a transfer of personality. In our school next door, every single day, Christian school teachers tacitly, silently say the most difficult thing one person can say to another person, especially in an educational environment, and that is, follow me as I follow Christ. 
Look at my example. Let me lead you in spiritual things. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you're at Arlington National Cemetery, at the head of Arlington National Cemetery is called the Custis Lee House, where Robert E. Lee lived. And before the Civil War, Robert E. Lee was at his home. A freshly fallen snow was on the ground, was blanketing the ground. And Robert E. Lee moved, moved from the house to one of the outbuildings. And as he was walking to one of the outbuildings, crunching his way through the snow, he heard something behind him. And he looked and he saw his young son trying to keep in his father's footprints. That night, Robert E. Lee wrote in his diary, when I discern this, my son walking in my footprints, in my footsteps, I said to myself, it behooves me to walk very straight when this young fellow is following in my steps. Our Christian school teachers stand before their students, stand before you as tuition-paying parents and say, let your children follow me as I follow Christ. Let me be a godly example and a good example of a good example to them. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says that he be as the master and the servant as the Lord. Your children assimilate the life, the attitudes, the spiritual nature of their teachers. What better atmosphere in 2021 to have your child in than in a Christian school in Fostoria Baptist Academy? One of the favorite maxims that the Puritans had is the father is the mirror by which children dress themselves. The children look at dad. They want to be just like dad. They look at dad. They want to talk like dad. They want to be like dad. And they look to dad as the example. Verse 2 says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and have known and our fathers have told us. The Bible is telling us that the primary instructor in the home and in spiritual things should be the dad. The only problem is sometimes dads kind of miss the mark in teaching the great lessons of life. At the, at the church and Christian school that we were at, we had one of the teachers, she was a kindergarten teacher, and she was out at recess, she was pushing the kids on the swing, and something distracted her. And the kid came back on the swing a little bit quicker without her being aware of it, and her wrist got bent back. And so she went to the doctor, and the doctor said, your wrist isn't broken, the tendons are a little bit tender. He said, what we're going to do is we'll put this plastic splint on your arm, It'll hold your wrist firm. We'll wrap it in an ace bandage, and we'll put it in a sling. So she showed up at church, arm in a sling. Ladies would look at her, and they would say, what happened to you? And she would tell the story. She was pushing the kid on the swing. He came back, and she wasn't prepared for it. She went to the doctor, and the doctor says, if I keep the splint on here and keep my wrist immobile, it should be okay. She said, every single lady said something like this. Is John helping out at home? Can I come over and make a meal for you? Can I come over and do laundry? Can I clean for you? What can I do to help you out? Every single lady looked at her and their hearts felt compassion for them. She said, this was her story. She said she came to church and men would see her arm in a sling and say, what happened to you? And she'd tell them very patiently the story. She was pushing the child on the swing, and 
he came back and she wasn't ready for it. And the doctor said that it's just sore tendons. She said, if I keep my wrist immobile, it should be okay. She said, every single guy said something like this. That's nothing. You should have seen what happened to me. And then they would tell some fantastic story about their injury. They were a senior in high school. They had torn ligaments in their knee. It was the homecoming game. And they still came in and kicked the extra point. And now after encouraging her, now they're going to help her. And they said, here's what you need to do. Exercise it a bit. Put a little Ben Gay on it. Put some ice on it. You'll be okay. Why is that? Because every single lady looks at life with compassion and empathy, and every single guy looks at life autobiographically. Yes, ladies, it is all about us, and we will tell you about us. I mean, we're in October. We live in Michigan. On any given day, we can, after the 1st of October, we can get six to eight inches of snow out there. And before online learning, if we got six to eight inches of snow, what does every single kid Hope and pray for what do they want? Snow day. And if they don't have their A game, they go to dad and they say, Dad, do you think we'll have snow day tomorrow? I think pastor will call school off. And what does dad do? Dad goes right to the home movies, reel number four, dad the early years. Son, let me tell you what it was like when I was your age. How far did dad live from school when he was that age? At least, what, five miles? Yep. How deep was the snow when dad lived five miles from school? At least waist deep. And that's all relative, because dad was only 36 inches tall at the time. (laughs) And the best part, what was the terrain from dad's house to school? Uphill. And if he's a good dad, both ways. We built them tough back then. Dads need to get away from teaching autobiographically. The Lord said to his disciples, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. Look on the fields, look on the people that are out there as opportunities for the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't look at them as somebody who can be the audience for your autobiographical story. Go there and tell them the greatest story that's ever been told, the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you can be like John the Baptist and say, he must increase, I must decrease. It is not about me. So verse 3 says, it is the job of the father to teach. And if you open up your Bible to the book of Proverbs, you will see that the first third of the book of Proverbs is a father appealing to his son and pleading with his son. Every chapter begins, my son, my son, my son, listen to me, my son. When you see the social setting unfold before you, flee, get away from it like a bird from the fowler. When you see friends that want to say, hey, put everything together, let's have a league together, he's saying, get away from that. It is a father's plea to his child to listen to him, to listen as the events of life unfold before him, to stand and do what's right, to have a heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. So a good dad uses every opportunity to teach. A good dad places his child in an environment where godly Christian education is the coin of the realm, and it happens on a regular, daily basis. So we know that we're supposed to have our child in a godly environment. How do we teach? 
What's the method that we teach? Look at what it says. Verse 4 says, We will not hide them from their children, showing the generation to come the praises of the Lord in his strength and the wonderful works that he hath done. In Christian education, we do not fly the Christian flag with pastel colors. We fly the Christian flag with the bold colors that are there. And we very boldly say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is power of God unto salvation, unto, unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the child that's in the Christian school, we say, God has a plan for your life. And it would benefit you. To every single day, seek God's word. Seek God's will for your life. And as a teacher, there is only one way to teach, and that is by example. The first, law, the first lesson of good teaching is repetition. The second law and lesson of good teaching is repetition. The third law of good teaching is repetition. We teach the things of God over and over again. As the Bible says, line upon line and precept upon precept, we walk the talk and not just talk the talk. We give that child that opportunity to do what is right. Babe Ruth, the great baseball player, said, I have signed my name to thousands of baseballs, but the man who ran the orphanage I grew up in signed his name on the life of about a dozen boys. By example, we teach. The world gets it. They know that advertisers say the same things over and over again in hoping that they'll buy into their product. We as believers teach the wonderful truths of the Lord to a generation so that they, in turn, can teach the next generation. Look at verse 4. It says, We will not hide them from their children, showing the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and the wonderful works that he hath done. We're going to tell this generation and the next. I was talking to one pastor and I mentioned to him, you are doing an amazing job training leaders for the future. And he said, no, Brother Smig, I'm not training leaders for the future. I'm training leaders for today. I'm training followers of Christ today. We expect our students to have devotions today. We expect our students to be a witness for the Lord today. We expect our students to know how to pray today. And in doing so, We involve them in service. We encourage them in the things that that we do. Verse 5 says, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their generation. What verse 5 is saying is that the curriculum in a Christian school is Bible-based. We don't take textbooks from a secular, unsaved world and try to add a Bible verse to them. We take textbooks that have a biblical worldview. I was talking to one parent about the importance of Christian education and the work that we do, and he said, let me tell you something. He said, I got saved. I came under conviction when we put our kids in Faith Baptist Schools of Davison, and they would bring their textbooks at home at night, and I would read their textbooks, and I would say, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And so finally, they had to go in and talk to the pastor, the administrator. What does all this mean? Biblical textbooks, the curriculum has a Bible-based worldview to it. A few years ago, I was in Lansing, and I had testified before the House Education Committee. They wanted to incorporate a common core curriculum in the schools of Michigan. 
And so I went there to testify against that as not being a very good idea for taxpaying parents to have their children indoctrinated with that curriculum. After I finished my testimony, they concluded the meeting, and I went to a local restaurant. I was having a sandwich there. And this lady came up to me, and she said, I was in the House Education Committee meeting room, and I listened to your testimony. I know that you work with those small private schools. She said, I understand that your students go to those smaller schools, but how do your students do in the real world? And I know exactly what she was asking. She was saying, take a look at our Christian schools, compare our gymnasium to the gymnasiums that the government schools have, compare our science lab to their science lab, compare our computers to their computers, and on just a raw one-to-one comparison, there is no comparison. And the first time I was asked that question, and I've been asked it a number of times, the first time I was asked that question, I got defensive. I said, well, our, our students, they get accepted in all the academies that they want to go to. They get accepted at the universities that they want to go to. We have students that are in the military academies. We've got officers in the military academies. Uh, I said, as a matter of fact, if you go to the White House down in the Situation Room, the White House guard that has the code to get the president or the vice president in the Situation Room, four, four stories below the Oval Office, he's a Max graduate. And I thought, that's the answer. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, that's not the answer. That's actually a pretty poor answer. I said, what we need to do is turn the question back on the questioner. Because the question was, how do our students do in the real world? Well, in the real world, there is a God, and one day all of us will give an account to him. And since 1962, our government schools have forbidden Bible reading and prayer in their schools, and the generation that is raised wordless will ultimately become godless. And imagine a godless person standing before a thrice holy God and giving an account to themselves of themselves. I said, in the real world, there is truth, it is absolute, and it is knowable. In the real world, there's heaven to be gained and hell to be shunned. So let me ask the questioner, how do our peers, our counterparts in the, in the government schools do, and how will they do in the real world? But I've often heard from those not in favor of Christian education, they will say, I know, but the students in the private schools, they miss so much. Can I tell you what your students will not get in a Christian school? They will not get evolution as fact. Someone has said, if you can believe the first four words, in the beginning, God, everything else is easy. And the issue is, it's not that we want our students to believe in God, Many people believe in God. We want our students to believe God, that his promises are ever true. His word is faithful, and he has a plan for our lives. Our students in a Christian school will not get secular humanism as a lifestyle. What is secular humanism? Man is the measure of all things. If it feels good, do it. You control your own destiny. They'll not get that. They will hear that one day you will stand before God and give an account of the things that you've done in your life. The Bible says that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. They will not get moral relativism. And that's the idea of, you know, what that, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. 
I have my own set of standards, and if it's true for me, and I have friends, you know, maybe they, they're confused about their human sexuality, and, and they're good people. Are, are you telling me that they're not good people? They'll not get moral relativism. They'll not get the idea that I can build my own truth and I can tell my own truth. They will get the truth that says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no truth in them. Let God be true and every man a liar. Any teaching that is contrary to the principles of this book is truth that will ultimately end that soul in error. What they'll not get in a Christian school is deviancy as normal or acceptable. You'll not find in our library books like Heather Has Two Mommies. They will find that God created them, made them male and female, in the image of God made he them, and that God's specific design for life is that we were created with a distinct purpose and distinctions between the sexes. In our Christian schools, you will not get the critical race theory or the teachings of the 1619 Project. What they'll get is that we as a nation have been providentially blessed beyond any imagination. And when you listen to the secular humanists today that want to recreate the world in their own thinking, like every other nation and every other philosophy, every man is going to do that which is right in his own eyes. Pastor mentioned this morning that the heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. Who can know it? We look back on our history, and we have been blessed with people, not all of them perfect, not all of them saved, not all of them Bible believers, but God in his divine providence has blessed us like no other nation in the world. We're still the envy of the world, as flawed and as imperfect as we are. And people say that according to an ideal standard, we are not perfect. And I would say, compared to what other nation? Compared to what other civilization? Verse 6. Let's take a look at verse 6 and look at how we are supposed to teach and the benefits of our teaching. Verse 6 says that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. At our educators' convention, every year we try to bring in different people who can help our schools. We will bring in uh, curriculum, textbook people. We bring in science teachers. We bring in uh, professors from the different colleges and universities. We bring in insurance people for the schools so that they can do comparisons to make sure they're saving as much money as they possibly can. One year we brought in a financial person, financial advisor. And between one of the sessions, he said, Brother Smig, I want to ask you about something. He said, have you ever thought of setting up a trust fund? I said, no, not really. What should a trust fund do? And he said, well, what you do is you set aside your money in a trust fund, and you don't spend it, and it builds interest so that one day your children can have benefits from the interest in that trust fund, and then down the road your grandchildren can have interest in that trust fund, and even your great-grandchildren can benefit from that trust fund. And I listened to everything that he said, and I think of Psalm 78, and I want you to take a look at how many generations benefit from Christian education. Turn with me and look at verse 3. We have heard and have known our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and the wonderful works that he hath done. Verse 7, verse 6 says that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them 
to their children. Depending on how you count this, there's anywhere from three to five generations there. That the benefits, the residual benefits of Christian education is generational. We have Christian schools that now have Christian school grandchildren in the school. The grandparents went to the school. The children went to the school. And now grandchildren are going to the school. The generational benefit of Christian education. I've asked parents, why do you put your child in a Christian school? Why do you pay for what the government schools say they will do for free, even though you and I know that ultimately it costs dearly to put your child in an environment like that? And I've heard people say things along these lines. I want my child to have it better than I had it. I want my child to get the things they can't get in the other schools, which is Bible, prayer, Bible reading, and I want them to have character. I want them to be able to be a profitable, productive citizen in this world. Can I tell you just what your children will get in a Christian school? I'm going to use a little bit of adult language as we talk about this. In a Christian school, your child will learn integrity. Portraying past events in a truthful manner. Realizing that everything that I say and do has ramifications, and therefore it is important for me to be a truthful, honest, morally upright citizen. They will learn to do their duty. They will learn to do their work on time. They'll learn that they have responsibilities in life. It's amazing when I study the writings of our founding fathers. Over and over again, they used words like duty and honor and integrity and doing the work. And you listen to what society says today, and they talk about rights and privileges and benefits. And the idea is we want our young people to have integrity. They will learn honesty. They will learn commitment, sticking with a task until it's completed, realizing that every job we do is a signature of ourself, realizing that it's important for us to be true to our word. For Numbers 23 and verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, shall he not make it good? And therefore, if I'm going to be godly, my word needs to be as good and as clean and as honest as my life. Do what we say we're going to do. And they will learn the principle of perseverance. Sticking with it. Being honorable. Having integrity. Having that godly commitment to a good and worthy cause. Those are just some of the reasons why parents place their child in a Christian school. So the whole purpose is found in verse 7. Why do we have a Christian school? Verse 7 says that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 17 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have a generation today that doesn't fear God, that has no fear of God in their eyes. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. The majority, the biggest part of a child's education is to learn what wisdom is and how to apply wisdom to their life. Contrast it with Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, 
which says that they hold or they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And Romans chapter 1 is an indictment of our present-day society in that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool can look at a curriculum and say, I can teach this without any knowledge of God in science or English or math or history. I started out by saying, every home is a school, every person is a teacher. In light of that, our task is great before us. What's our task? Found in verse 7, that they might set their hope in God. We have a generation coming up who, unless we reach them, unless we help them, they will set their hope in everything but God. They will set their hope in their ingenuity. They will set their hope in their intelligence. They'll set their hope in their physical strength. They'll set their hope in their ability to work. They will set their hope in their finances. They will set their hope in everything. But the thing that God wants us to set our hope in is to set our hope in God. Too often, we take a look at the students that we have. And it's very easy to look past them and forget that one day they will be the leaders, the, futures, the future teachers of tomorrow. When Martin Luther the Reformer was in what the gymnasium, the German uh, primary school up until about eighth grade, his favorite professor was a man by the name of Trebonius. And every single day when Trebonius walked into his classroom with his uh, doctoral robe on and his professor's hat, he would walk into the class and he would take his hat off and he would doff his hat before the students. One day, one of the students said, Mr. Trebonius, every time you walk into this classroom, you take your hat off and you bow to us. Why do you do that? And he responded, the reason that I'm doing that is because I'm walking into the presence of so many future burgermeisters and ministers and businessmen. He saw them for what they could be. He saw them for the potential that was there in their lives. Do we see our students for the potential that they have? There's a man by the name of Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Boston, and one day, a young man walked into his Sunday school class. A man had never really been in Sunday school before. He didn't know what was going to go on, and Edward Kimball handed him a closed Bible and said, our Bible lesson today is in the book of John. And the young man took the Bible and frantically looked for the book of John. The students around assessed the situation got Mr. Kimball's attention, and Mr. Kimball handed him his open Bible to the book of John and took the young man's closed Bible and proceeded to teach the lesson. The next Saturday, Edward Kimball was sitting at his kitchen table preparing his lesson for the next day. When he said it was as if an audible voice told him, you need to go visit that young man. He works at Holton Shoe Store in downtown Boston. Edward Kimball thought it was a prompting of the Lord, so he got up from his table made his way to downtown Boston, and just before he got to the Holton Shoe Store, he started to have thoughts. And he said, what if I walk into the shoe store and the boss gets mad at me and that young man because I'm taking time away from him doing his job? What if I walk into that store and the other workers see me trying to make a good boy out of this young man and they start to make fun of him? What if I walk into the store and the young man doesn't want to be seen with somebody who just taught his Sunday school class? And all the while, while Edward Kimball was having this debate in his mind, he walked right past Holton Shoe Store. 
When he realized what he had done, he walked in, saw the young man in the back, stocking and shelving shoes. He walked up to the young man behind the counter, put his hand on his shoulder, and made a plea for his soul. By Edward Kimball's own admission, the plea was rather a weak one. Years later, D.L. Moody recounted that moment like this. He said, when I was in Boston, I used to attend a Sunday school class. And one day I recollect my teacher came around behind the counter of the shop where I was at work in, and he put his hand on my shoulder and talked to me about Christ and my soul. I had not felt I had a soul till then. I said to myself, this is a very strange thing indeed. Here is a man who never saw me till lately, and he is weeping over my sins, and I never shed a tear about them. But I understand now what it is to have a passion for men's souls and to weep over their sin. Folks, every single day, the potential next D.L. Moody sits in our Christian school classrooms. Maybe the next Fanny Crosby. Maybe the next Billy Sunday. Maybe the next missionary that we can add to the mission board that's out there. We need to see the potential in the students that are there and to encourage them in the work and the calling that our Christian school teachers have, to encourage them in the things that they are doing to try to train this generation and the next. So what can we do? The world out there, they can only teach secular education. That's all they've got. We have the great blessing of teaching and education so that people, young people, will set their hope in God. The education of the heart is the heart of education. It's what we do. It's what we are about. And we educate young people in the very best things that one day they will stand before God. So you need to prepare to meet your God and realize that in everything that we do, we will give an account to God for what we've done. So let's do it heartily as unto the Lord. Let's live our lives full force for God and for his glory. To the teachers that we have here, can I challenge you with being an encouragement to our Christian school teachers? If you have a garden, bring vegetables to them. Send a note of encouragement now and then. Give them a gift card to Starbucks or maybe a restaurant. Just a word to say we're thankful for what you do. We're thankful for the ministry that you have here. Those are the heroes that walk among you today. In just a few weeks, you're going to have a missions conference here. Can I submit to you that you have missionaries walking among you every single day? This is our Jerusalem. This is what we're trying to do to reach this generation and the next for the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be an encouragement to them. The Bible says, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men especially unto them that are of the household of faith. It's within our means to do it. The poet put it this way. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it could have been, had he had his way, and I see how I blocked him here, and I checked him there, and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still? He would have me rich, and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a hunted thing down paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. I'll cover my face in my empty hands. I'll bow my uncrowned head. Lord, 
of the years that are left to me. I yield them to thy hand. Take me, make me to the pattern thou hast planned. The pattern for us tonight is that this generation and the next would set their hope in God and that you would be an encouragement to those who stand in the gap and help to make this possible. Let's pray together tonight. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to open up your word. Thank you for the principles of your word. Thank you for the blessing of having a Christian school. Thank you for the blessing of being able to minister to young people and to parents. Thank you for the opportunity that we have. Lord, you have blessed us so abundantly. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, my invitation to you tonight is this. Would you take on our Christian school teachers to be an encouragement to them, to pray for them on a regular basis, to show acts of kindness to them as they stand in the gap? These are missionaries standing right among you. And they are a blessing to us and to our students, to the parents and the families that send their child to the Christian school. My challenge to you is will you take the challenge and be an encouragement to this generation and the next. Father, I ask that you would help us